Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. So let me read Jude chapter 1 verse 3 as Jude kind of introduces the theme of what he's writing about. Jude verse 3, beloved... Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Say contend. Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And now he's going to tell us why we need to contend. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I got to kick off this series a couple of weeks ago and I'll, I'll do it now like I did it then. Grace, there are people who make it the business of their lives to enter into churches, local congregations like this for the express purpose of sowing discord and half truths and dissension and disunity for the sake of licensing their own sin. Misery loves company. And these false teachers were creeping into the church to spread half-truths about Jesus so that they could stamp God's approval upon their sin and as much as they could draw other people to join them in their sin. That's how Jude opens the letter. He was eager to write about one thing. He found it necessary to write about another. And then for the next 12 verses, man, Jude goes off on identifying who these false teachers were, what they were like, how God felt about them and would respond to them by using metaphor after metaphor and examples and stories from Israel's past and even extra biblical literature. And that was Dustin's message two weeks ago. I'm so glad I didn't have to teach through that passage. But this morning, verses 17 to 23, we finally get to find out what Jude means when he says contend for the faith. This text is eminently practical. We finally find out how to fight for the faith. And some of y'all are on the edge of your seat because you're itching for a fight. Hear me. Contending for the faith is less about going toe-to-toe with the false teachers. than it is much more about growing our roots deeper into the grace of God. It is less about taking an adversarial posture to the people who were infiltrating the church. And it was more about remembering, remaining, and rescuing. That's how the text chops up for us. 17 and 18, Jude wants us to remember the false teachers. Two specific things about them. That their presence is certain and their portrait is clear. He wants us to remember that they're here. He wants us to remain in the love of God, verses 19, 20, and 21. And then finally, he wants us to rescue those who are wandering because of the false teachers, 22 and 23. Contending for the faith is about growing in the grace of God and learning to be compelled by the love of God to be merciful to those who are being led astray. 
The reason I say this, some of us think that contending for the faith is, you know, being a keyboard warrior on Facebook or writing the newspaper or railing at school board meetings. Listen, sometimes, sometimes that's necessary. But according to Jude, contending for the faith is being compelled by the love of God. Being compelled by the love of God to remember, to remain, and to rescue. Let's dive into the text. Verse 17, Jude wants these believers to remember a few things about these false teachers. He wants us to remember first and foremost that their presence is certain. Look at verse 17. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. He wants us to remember their presence is certain, their portrait is clear. Their presence is certain because Jesus warned us against them. Matthew 7, Matthew 24. The apostle Paul told us about them. Acts chapter 20, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Peter tells us about them. 2, chap, 2 Peter chapter 2, even the beloved apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 4 rang the alarm against these false teachers at the end of the first century. Jude's whole letter is about them. Here's the point. We should not be surprised that there are individuals in our churches seeking to sow dissension and discord and false teaching. We shouldn't be caught off guard by that. We need to remember that their presence is certain so that when we see it, we can recognize it. How do we recognize it? Their portrait is clear. What are they going to look like? Well, verse 18, they are going to be, you ready? Scoffers. Verse 18, they are going to be sensual. Verse 19, they are going to be separators. And finally, they are going to be spiritless. Verse 18, they are scoffers, meaning that they ridicule and laugh at the holiness of God. They have no reverence for his purity. They laugh with derision at the standards of God. His standards for sexuality, his standards for holiness and purity and obedience. Do you laugh and scoff at God's design and his standards? They scoffed at God's holiness and his purity. Why? Because they didn't want a crown on their head. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and stamp the name of Jesus on it. And that's not too much different than the culture in which we live in. They scoffed at God's holiness. They were also sensual. Verse 18 says that they walked according to their ungodly desires and passions. They pursued that which pleased themselves. For them, lust was Lord, passion was king. And that phrase walked according to, you know what it means? It means that it was the natural pattern of their lives. This marked who we used to be before Jesus. There's good news here for those of us who are in Christ. We might still find ourselves wandering on passion-filled paths, trying to get our needs met apart from Jesus. But in Christ, those lusts and desires, they're no longer in the driver's seat. It may feel like it sometimes. But that's not who we are in Christ. The pattern of our lives are no longer to be led by our passions and our lusts and our desires. It is to be led by the spirit of God, by the indwelling Christ who calls us to a completely different standard. These false teachers, they were scoffers. They were 
sensual. They were also separators, meaning that they fostered strife and caused division. They worked to separate rather than to bring together. Uh, false teachers made it their aim to bring division. Why? Because the nature of teaching that is false and erroneous creates division from those who are trying to believe the truth. They were scoffers, they were sensual, they were separators. They were also spiritless. Now this is hard to interpret in the original language, but most commentators basically sum it up like this. They didn't have the spirit. They weren't Christians. They claimed to be Christ but they betrayed that confession with how they lived their lives. They boasted of the spirit, but they did not know the spirit. Their portrait is clear. And so Jude wants us to know. He wants us to remember their presence is certain. Don't be surprised. Their portrait is clear. Know what they look like. So when you see them, you can stand firm. You know what to look for, but there's so much more to contending for the faith than just remembering. He also calls us to remain in the love of God. Say remain. Verse 20, but you beloved, he switches gears here. He's done talking about the false teachers. He has wasted enough space on these false teachers, but you, now he turns his direction back to the beloved. That's you, saint. You are the beloved of God. Even if you don't feel like it, even if the circumstances you're walking through seem to betray that confession, the beloved of God are those who are being loved by God, regardless of what we're experiencing or walking through. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but if I was the beloved of God, then why, why am I walking through fill in the blank? Tell you what, this is a, an aside. Uh, God took us at our word when we said, make me like Jesus. And Jesus out of his own mouth said, foxes have, ne have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Hebrews 2 reminds us that the son learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Why would it be any different for us? You are being loved by God. We are his beloved. He has placed his love on us. We are the objects of his affection. He has placed the love of God in our hearts so that we can love other people. But you beloved, remember you are beloved, but you beloved. And now he tells us what it means to contend for the faith, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean speaking in tongues. Sorry, charismatic guys. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Four commands or so it seems. Building up, praying in the spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the English, it seems like he's calling us to four different things, but you would be wrong because the Greek language only has one command, one imperative in the entire passage. One thing we're being called to do. Do you know what it is? Keep yourselves in the love of God. But what does that mean? How do we do it? I'm glad you asked. The other three participles tell us how. We build, we pray, we wait. Keep yourselves in the love of God, Jude tells us. But we do that not just by building, praying, and waiting. There's also one more thing that we're supposed to do. But it's not here in 20 and 21. It's all the way back in verse 1. How do I know that it's all the way back in verse 1? Because Jude loves this idea of being kept 
or keeping. He uses it like four or five times in 25 verses. He starts the letter with it. He uses the word keep or kept in verses six and verse 13, talking about how God keeps the angels who got outside of their proper abode. He uses it two times at the end of the letter because keeping is a powerful idea that Jude wants to point out to us. And so we got to jump back to verse one really quick. Do you remember how I started this letter a couple of weeks ago? Jude does not call us to action out of the gate. Instead, he calls us to remember. Verse one, look how Jude starts the letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We're calling this series Fighting the Good Fight. And I said to you three weeks ago when we launched this series, the prerequisite for fighting the good fight is knowing who we are in Christ. We are called by God for God's purposes in the world. We are being loved in the Father. We are the beloved of God. And we are kept for Jesus. Here's what I need you to see. God does the keeping. God does the saving, the regenerating, the rescuing, the justifying, the sanctifying, the glorifying, and he does the keeping work. It is the power of God through the gospel work of Jesus that keeps us, that stabilizes us, that secures us, that sets our feet firmly on the rock that is Jesus and also becomes the very source and supply of our life to walk in obedience to all of the commands of God's word. We have to see that our call to keep ourselves in the love of God first comes from knowing we are kept by the Father. You forget that, dear ones, and you will try to become something you already are. Kept. And the onus will be on you. Instead of recognizing that the keeping power is of him. This doesn't mean that we don't have work to do, but our work is always from a posture of being kept by God. This is so important. This is foundational to the Christian faith. Hear me, folks. Christian maturity is not about behaving better. It's about believing better. It is about believing that we are who God says we are and learning to live out of that confession and that reality. And I am convinced that to the degree that we believe the gospel, that we are being kept by the Father, our behavior will begin to be shaped by that confession. So Jude writes, hey, I'm writing to the called, the beloved, and the kept. How do we contend for the faith? We remain in the love of God by knowing that we are being kept by God. But also, verse 20, by building ourselves up in a most holy faith. Jump back to verse 20. What does this mean? Building ourselves up in the most holy faith. This metaphor of building up or being built into or onto something is common in the New Testament. It's borrowed from the realm of architecture, Legos. 
And like Paul, Jude views the Christian community as a building, as a temple, as a structure that is meant to rise to the glory of God. The apostles and the prophets built the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And you and me, we are the stones, the living stones that God is building together for the house of God, the temple of the Lord. This isn't the church, the building. We are the church, the called out ones assembled together by the work of the spirit of God. And we are called now to build upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. How do we do that? How do we build ourselves up in the most holy faith? We grow in the scriptures. How do do I come to that conclusion? Because this isn't the first time that Judas introduced us to this faith. Back in the very beginning, verse three, he says, contend for the faith. That was once and for all delivered to the saints. Do you know what the faith is? The faith is the deposit of truth. The entire counsel of who God is, what God has done, who we are in light of that, now how we are to live our lives. This word of God is the deposit of truth. It is the gospel of God's creative power, of the story of God and how sin entered into humanity, of the good news of Jesus coming to rescue and to redeem that which was broken because of sin and the future promise that Jesus is coming back one day to fix everything that is broken. We need to grow in the scriptures. That's how we build ourselves up in this faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. We gotta know the word of God. We have to grow in the scriptures because beloved, this is the full revelation of who God is to us. Nothing you will ever hear from any other voice can stand in contradiction to this. And so we learn to grow in the scriptures. We learn to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. This is why we host Grace University classes here at Grace Bible Church. Sunday morning is not enough for you to be built up in your most holy faith. We define disciples around here as someone who is learning to submit all of life to the leadership of Jesus and inviting others to do the same. All of life can't be put on display in a Sunday morning with 400 other people. And so just last week, we launched an 8.30 a.m. Grace University class in room 111, walking through the New Testament letter of Hebrews. Lots of chairs available for you. Wednesday nights, we've, we've launched two weeks ago a uh, ladies' Bible study through the Old Testament book of Ruth. We've got a co-ed study through the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. One of my good friends, Jonathan, one of our Grace U teachers is putting together a Grace U class on why we can trust the Bible, why its veracity and truthfulness is accurate and we can stand upon this with all of the weight of our conviction. We need to grow in the scriptures. It's how we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. How do we contend for the faith? We remember the false prophets. We remain in the love of God and we remain in the love of God by building ourselves up and by praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Listen, Grace, the main things are the plain things. The main things are the plain things. Jude opened this letter with this serious call to contend for the faith. And as he lands this letter, he calls us back to the basics. 
of growing in the scriptures and depending upon the spirit in prayer. That's how we contend for the faith. You know what praying in the Holy Spirit really is? It's learning to acknowledge our need for the Spirit's help. This is what Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 8. Man, Paul tells us that there are those days and those experiences when we are so broken that we don't even know the what to pray. It's literally how the Greek reads. You don't know the what to pray. And so the spirit works in our weaknesses and he takes the groanings of our heart and makes it perfectly intelligible to the father. What a gift. What a gracious gift of the spirit. And so praying in the Holy Spirit is learning to depend upon the wisdom and discernment of the spirit. It's being led by the spirit and praying full of the spirit. How do you do it? Here's a real good way to start and I'm not good at it. Sit down to pray and shut up. And wait for the spirit. Wait for the spirit. Wait. JJ, Pastor JJ, our executive pastor of operations, reminds me sometimes when I'm talking. He says, wait. It's an acronym. Why am I talking? (laughs) That's for free. Jude calls us to pray in the Holy Spirit. Listen, prayer is a struggle for all Christians. You know why? Because dependence is a struggle for all people. It's hard for us to pray simply because it's hard for us to remember how much we need God, especially in a culture as affluent as ours. You do know that most of you are in the 1%, 1% of wealth in the world. It's hard for us to know and to believe And to live as if we know that we are desperate for God's help. And so Jude's appeal for them to pray in the Holy Spirit would have been an appeal for them to become people who did not depend on themselves or their intellect or their aging wisdom to figure out everything. They could have been similar to us in that while building themselves up in the faith, maybe by studying biblical doctrine or by being busy in ministry, they'd soon forgotten that knowing a lot about God shouldn't make you more independent of God. Let me say that again. I said it fast. Learning more information about God should not make you more independent of God. Jude wanted them to be a group of needy people that would be led by the spirit and how they lived and how they prayed. Remain in the love of God. We do that by building ourselves up, by growing in the scriptures, by praying in the spirit, and finally by waiting on the mercy of Jesus. Grace, waiting is not sitting on our hands and binging Netflix. Waiting has the idea of watching and looking expectantly with certainty. As Christians, we don't have to wonder if Jesus is coming back. We know he is. We are confident. We have hope. You know what hope is? Hope is not the wishful sentiment that what we want to happen is going to happen. Hope, biblical hope, is a confident assurance in the promises and the person of God. And so we can watch with expectancy. Waiting on the mercy of Jesus that leads to eternal life. But as he tarries, however long he takes to finally come to consummate his kingdom, we have to remember that he does so because he is merciful. And there are those who are wandering from the truth that need the mercy of God through the people of God. 
I think that's why Jude tells us that contending for the faith is not just remembering the false prophets, not just remaining in the love of God, but it's also this last section, rescuing those who have wandered. Verse 22, read with me. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. You know, a really good definition of mercy, simply put, is compassion in action. However, take a close look here. Jude makes three different distinctions on how to be merciful, which clues us into the, the truth that though every person needs mercy, not every person needs the same method of how we administer mercy. How do we know what mercy should look like here? We're told to have mercy on some who doubt, to save others by snatching them out of the fire, which is an act of mercy if it's seen rightly, and to show others mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by flesh. How do we know which one to administer? Because let, let's be honest, the one who doubts is obviously different from the one who needs to be snatched out of the fire. I mean, how we demonstrate mercy and contend for the faith in say the marketplace of a secular city like New York City or San Francisco differs from how you'd contend for the faith of a doubting believer who's, I don't know, a member of a Baptist church in the Bible Belt South. How you contend looks and sounds different. Could it be why contending for the faith requires that we pray in the spirit so that our discernment comes from heaven? So here's what I think Jude is trying to say as he lands this plane. Next week is just a doxology of praising the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is the end of the, the teaching, the didactic portion of the epistle. Next week is all worship. And I'm jealous that Dustin gets to teach on it. I hope he gets sick. <laughs> I'm just playing. Here's what I think Jude is saying as he tries to land this plane. Contending for the faith should compel us towards wanting to show mercy that is appropriate for the need of the moment, but we've got to be in the moment to discern what the need is. Let me say that again. As some of you are scrolling on your phones, not in the moment. Just playing, just you're taking notes, I see you. Jude wants us to know that contending for the faith should compel us towards wanting to show mercy that is appropriate for the need of the moment, but we gotta be in the moment to know what the need is. We gotta be fully present with people. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's the first one. To doubt is to vacillate. It is to go back and forth on what to believe. Is God real or is God fake? Can the Bible be trusted or is it a concoction of flawed men? Is Jesus God or is he a creation of God? Did God make me gay or is my sexuality a product of brokenness and that God's design for my sexuality is still the safest place for my flourishing? These are questions that we're wrestling with. They wrestled with questions too. They may not sound the same. But they wrestled with questions and they doubted because the false teachers were leading them astray from the solid ground of truthfulness. Do you see why this is such an important conversation to have 
We have people in our culture that are looking for answers, but there aren't any faithful, true guides pointing them in the right direction. That's why the enemies of our soul are never as dangerous as when they present themselves to us as false teachers, masquerading as true and able guides, but they're not. They're not. Jude's recipients had questions just like ours. And and listen, every Christian has doubts at some point in their journey of faith. I've had them. And for some of us, our doubts are seasonal or momentary. For others, the doubts are persistent and lifelong. But in those times when doubts are louder than faith, some Christians, I'm not talking about any of y'all, but if the shoe fits, some Christians, some Christians have taken it upon themselves to be cold and condescending and judgmental towards those who are doubting. Those Christians have forgot Jude's call to mercy. They forgot that they've been shown mercy. Abundant mercy. And church, oh, mercy is far more likely to keep the doubter within the fold of the faithful than harsh rebuke. Have mercy on those who doubt. There's a second group here though. They need a different kind of mercy, right? Save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are the Christians who've gone further down the road, blazed by these false teachers. Unlike those who doubt, this group of people, I mean, they weren't vacillating between truth and error anymore. They'd simply begun to believe the lies. They were no longer wrestling with biblical truths or unbiblical ideas. Rather, there was this gradual submission towards sin in their life and false doctrine that they weren't yet in hell for but they were playing with fire. Their feet were close to the flames and for their safety and for their eternal sake, they needed to be snatched out. Jackie Hill Perry, a Bible teacher and a spoken word artist in her study through Jude, she writes this. There's nothing new under the sun. And for that reason, today and until the return of Christ, there will be times when our friends and our family and our church members will not be willing to endure sound doctrine. They'll listen to the teachers teaching what their hearts desire. And these teachers are everywhere. On social media, in the Christian living section of the bookstore, in our churches, it's not hard to access these unbiblical messages. And when this happens to the people closest to us, Jude would want us to snatch them as in contend for the faith forcefully and with urgency. And snatching somebody out of the fire takes intentionality and boldness, biblical clarity and knowledge. However, however, Christians tend to take two different approaches to this call to snatch. One of them is the all love and no truth approach. And one of them is the all truth but no love approach. We all might find ourselves on the end of one of these spectrums at some point, wherever you may land naturally. Take a second to answer these questions. Maybe you're in the all love, no truth category. Maybe you're in the all love, no truth category. Ah, there it is. Take a second, if this is you, all love and no truth. Wrestle through these questions for a second. Can, Can you think of a time when you shrunk back from sharing a hard biblical truth in the name of Love. And can you identify the thoughts or the fears or the doubts that kept you from saying the true hard thing? All love, no truth. 
Maybe you're in the all truth, no love category. Here's some questions for you to consider. Can you think of a time when you were biblically accurate in what you shared, but practically loveless in how you shared? Can you identify the thoughts or maybe even prideful perspectives that hindered your love? All love, no truth, all truth, no love. A mentor of mine, Steve Pettit says, truth without love is surgery with a battle ax. And love without truth is surgery with a butter knife. Neither get the job done. One leaves a a lot more damage too. This is why Jesus came full of love and truth, full of grace and truth. We need him and the spirit to discern through us what the need of the moment is. And and those of you self-proclaimed defenders of the faith out there, please be careful when you pick up your Jesus banners while failing to represent the character of the faithful. When we are tempted to do that, we have to remember obedience to what God has commanded through Jude should be done in submission to the second of the greatest commandments when Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And consequently, when we are tempted to err on the side of timidity to the point that we are around people meddling with fire and we don't point out the flames around their feet, we need to be reminded, 2 Timothy 1.7, that we have not received a spirit of fear, but of love and of peace and a sound mind and self-control. Listen, church, we can walk in truth and love by walking in the spirit. And when a Christian is led by the spirit and snatching people out of the fire, they can be bold and loving while being honest and gentle, faithful and fearless. Because the spirit will always lead his own to bear that kind of fruit. Final rescue here in the text is the end of verse 23. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This third group is a tad difficult to interpret because we're not entirely sure who Jude is referring to. It could be a group of people who are in the most desperate condition of the three. Since this group is not only done wrestling with truth, they're not only done uh, believing, uh, they're not not only uh, done believing the lies of the false teachers, but these folks, man, their lives have been so corrupted because of sin that they're now defiled both in how they think and how they live. This group of people may be the people that are so hardened to the truth of the gospel that they're hostile. And want nothing to do with it or you because you belong to him. And if that's who he's talking about, how much more scandalous is it that Jude calls us to show them mercy too? Who have you written off that's unreachable? Who is it? Who's in the far country right now that you said, ah, I don't know. I turn them over to you, God. Have mercy. Have mercy. But have mercy with fear. You know what the fear is about? The fear is a warning to those of us called to show mercy because none of us are immune to falling into temptation. In the blink of an eye, y'all, 
An act of mercy or a reach to save puts us not only in touch with evil, but also in the presence and fullness of fallen desires. In other words, check yourself before you wreck yourself in the pursuit to show mercy. Listen, when a well-meaning Christian enters into the ministry of mercy without the fear of God, their compassion can quickly become complicity and eventually conformity. Does that make sense? You play with fire, you get burned sometimes. If we're not careful, we get consumed by it. Showing mercy without fear and hatred of sin makes us all susceptible to fall into the same deceit which has overtaken the one we are ministering to. This is why Jude's instructions here are so important. Hear me now as I land this plane. Building ourselves up in the faith will anchor us in the truth of God's word. Praying in the Holy Spirit will increase our dependence upon God and upon his spirit. And waiting for God's mercy will keep our eyes on eternity. And all three will keep us in God's love so that while we walk with a friend living sinfully, we will have the ability to love them well and hate their sin. This is how we contend for the faith, Grace. We remember the false teachers. Their presence is certain, their portrait is clear. We remain in the love of God by building up our most holy faith, by praying in the spirit, by waiting on the mercy of God, by remembering that God is the one who keeps us. And we rescue those who are wandering by being agents of mercy. Let me close with a powerful quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says, I'm going to drink to this. If the hearts of the members of the church are right, mockers and scoffers can do very little against them. Keep yourselves in the love of God for a warm-hearted company of Christians who love the Lord with all their hearts and with all their souls are not likely to be overcome by mockers and sensualists. Love to God will be as a wall of fire round about them. In dull, decaying churches, errors spread like ivy on the crumbling walls of an old abbey. But life, zeal, earnestness, warm-heartedness throw off these evils even as a red-hot iron plate evaporates the drops which fall upon it. Love God and you will not love false doctrine. Keep the heart of the church right and her head will not go far wrong. Let her abide in the love of Jesus and she will abide in the truth. I believe that's true about us as a church. That we love God and we love truth. But the fact of the matter is that there are false teachers here as well and we need you to be on guard. There is a time and a place for going toe to toe with the false teachers. It's the job of the shepherd. It's what we commit to doing as your pastors and shepherds. Your call is to have mercy. And to be aware and to know what it looks like and to know that the love of God and the mercy of God is bigger and stronger than the lies of the enemy. So may we be a church that continues to stand for truth, that contends for the faith, that believes that God's work in us and through us really can saturate every nook and cranny of the Heartland region where we live for the good of the Heartland region and for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this reminder, this word. Thank you for the heart of Jesus. 
that is our heart in Christ. Father, guard us from allowing our frustration and anger to bubble over when we see false teachers doing what they do best, deceiving and leading astray. May your heart compel us. May the ministry of reconciliation that we have received in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, may that compel us towards seeing those far from God brought close. And for those of us who have loved ones in the far country, God, may we continue to have mercy continue to pray and continue to believe, God, that you are bigger, stronger, more able to keep even them. Draw them back from error, Father. Restore to them the joy of their salvation. If they've never had it, God, would you rescue them and place your life into them. It's in the mighty name of Jesus who can do these things. Amen.